1: Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Olaine Eaton. It's likely that most listeners know something of the life of Sylvia Plath, a stunningly talented American poet who committed suicide in the brutally cold London winter of 1963. But have you read her novel? The Bell Jar, published in the UK that year, wouldn't be released in the US until 1971. And it is the events that inspired this semi-autobiographical Welcome to New Books and Biography, I'm Olaine Eaton. It's likely that most listeners know something of the life of Sylvia Plath, a stunningly talented American poet who committed suicide in the brutally cold London winter of 1963. But have you read her novel? The Bell Jar, published in the U.K. that year, wouldn't be released in the U.S. until 1971, and it is the events that inspired this semi-autobiographical account that lay at the heart of Elizabeth Winder's new book, entitled Pain Party's Work, Sylvia Plath in New York, Summer of 1953. Hi hey Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography today. I wonder if you could just thank kick you. things off by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Um, okay, sure. I guess I guess the most important thing about myself is that I I'm really a, a poet. I mean that's what I was trained trained to be. Um, I have an MFA and it's a, it's a creative writing MFA and um, it's with a poetry concentration. And um, you know when I was uh, in college, I pretty much exclusively wrote wrote poetry. And then I you know of course I had to write some. Uh, you know, English papers but those were always done really badly. So <laughs> I've um I've always, I've always been, been a poet and I've um I never really until I wrote this book I've never really tried anything else. Mm-hmm. Um even though I've for years I have been probably since you know, two thousand five or earlier. <laughs> I've um I've been I love to read nonfiction, especially biographies of women. Um So, you know, obviously, I I think it's a natural thing to kind of, to gradually begin to write what you read, I think. Right.
1: Do you remember when you first encountered Sylvia Plath in your own life?
0: I do, yeah. I was, um, I was 14 and I was in high school and a friend of mine was reading a copy of The Bell Jar and it was the old 70s, um... Mm -hmm cover of this this very, like, sort of gothic looking rose with sort of sharp edges um, hanging upside down and this, like, big black lettering. And um, he let me me the book because I was really curious about it. And I had heard the name Sylvia Plath before, and I didn't really, you know, know who she was. And and I remember reading the book, and I remember that it's... um, smelled so deeply of, of, of cigarettes because my father <laughs> smoked and I thought that was really glamorous so I, <laughs> um, I never like owned an object that reeked of cigarettes before so <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool and um then I and of course I just and I just fell in love with the language and I remember um specifically was just really becoming obsessed with the character Doreen because, well, I thought her name was, was fantastic, I and mean, it was this, like, 50s name, and um, I just thought that she was the most glamorous person on earth, and I, and I loved how irreverent she was, and I loved that she always knew how much, like, tip the bellhop and, and all this stuff, so, so I became really attached to the book, and I also just thought the book was so funny, and mm-hmm. um, you know, particularly in the descriptions of the um Esther's boyfriend, the Buddy Willard character. Um, you know, and he's like um that awful scene where like, he 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 takes off his underwear and um of course like Sylvie Platte is like describing the underwear, it's like it's like meshed like fishnet mat or something and he drapes it really neatly across the back of the chair and it's just like so awful and it's so funny and mm-hmm. um, you know, it just it, it seems very real to me. And, uh, you know, so then, so then very quickly, I, um, I, uh, asked for, it was like for Christmas or my birthday or something. I, um, to more Sylvia Plath, and I, and I got a, um, her collected poems. and it's a, it's a very, I still have it. It's a very attractive book. I think it's just, I love the way it looks. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I just like fell very deeply in love with the way she used this language and the, like, the vividness of it. And it really, and I, you know, I was so young. I was, you know, uh, Fourteen or fifteen, I I had known for a long time. I wanted to be a writer and that I wanted to be a poet. So, um, and I really think that her sense of language and her attention, this like exquisite attention to detail and syllables, is kind of it was it was important for me when I when I formed my idea of what writing is and what I wanted to do with it. and Sylvia Plath had a lot to do with that.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so is this the first time you've really written about her? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and what drew you to this particular... Because this is a partial life biography. It just focuses on the time in New York. What drew you to right. that particular time in her life, and why did you decide to do a partial life rather than a full life?
0: Well, I've... Um, you know, obviously, I never, I, I never thought that, that I'd write nonfiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think for years, I've sort of been hoping that I would. Um, but I, I like to focus... No matter what I'm writing, I like to focus on on, um, you know, small things, an image, a detail, a certain amount of time. Um, I like, I like details, I like physical, um, I like physical, like, sensual details that are, that I think are almost, like, cinematic in a way. And I mm-hmm. think that um, when you, when you're looking at the broad scope of a life, anyone's life, it's, it's difficult to do to to really focus on those small relatable things so I, I wanted to I, so I've always been drawn to like I tend to narrow rather than broaden out my focus I guess um, but regarding Sylvia Platt I've you know I've, I've read probably almost every biography written about her and there's so many and um, you know some of them I, I really like and're quite good but I've I've always thought it was odd that no, none of her biographies really seem to, to kind of gloss over this, this summer in her life mm-hmm. and only and sort of like race race through it, like impatient to get to the, the you know, the wild disaster at the end where she attempts to attempt suicide. Um, and I think that it's, it's so much more than that. It was so much more than that. It was just really, you know, she was 20 years old and it was just really – Crucial period of her life, it's like there's not, well, not even a period, it's a matter of weeks, but I think it, um, it's a really interesting kind of look at. And no one else is doing it. And, and plus, you asked this um, wonderful I mean, she was, this is like the first time in her life that she was taken out of New England. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and then this, this is someone who's used to like wealthy and Smith, and now she's in New York, and it's something completely different and, um, and new for her. And I think that's interesting
1: too. You know. Yeah. Uh, so, what sources were most helpful? You were able to interview the women, the other interns, correct? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's right. That, that's like a huge. That was a huge source in my book. I don't know what I would have done without them. Mm-hmm.
1: Was there anything else that was helpful that you were able to get access to? Or um, I know oh, the
0: diaries, yeah. obviously. Mm-hmm. Right, and those have been, you know, those have been published. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, you know what they weren't. Sylvia's so journals weren't a huge source for me. I mean, she really didn't write about this at all, this yeah. period. Um, which is, which I think is really wild in itself and says something because mm-hmm. she was such a journal keeper, you know, no matter how busy she was um, for her whole life. So, I, I thought that, I, that, that intrigued me, you know, that fact intrigued me. Um, so, in terms of other sources, I went to the uh, Plath class archives in um the Lily Library. It's a library that um uh, the school at the University of Indiana in Bloomington. Mm-hmm. And um so they, they have a they have a ton of in fact I think that most of the Sylvia Plath archives are there. In fact not even at Smith although there's some at Smith but the, it that was just that was I love research and it's like by far the fun that's I mean, research is the fun part mm-hmm. for me. So I went there twice actually, and I and I to the Lily Library, and I just loved every minute of it. And we have so oh my god, there's so many things. At first, <laughs> I thought, oh, you know, I, I'm going to look at everything, and that was, I mean, that was never going to happen. When yeah. I thought, I I nah. Um, so, oh gosh, yeah, I, that was that was just, that was a real high point for me. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm a bit a cough, but um, yeah. So I. So, in terms of what was there, there was this really big folder on all of the Mademoiselle-related stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, all of the documents and the, and the handoffs they gave her, the schedule, um, the, the things that she wrote to apply as a guest her were all there. And so, there was a lot there, and that was kind of step one, was piecing together the framework of the month. And... Um, then, of course, I looked at I looked at other things in the archives, like um, she was a probably like a, a lot of sort of, um, you know, educated, bookish types of her age. She was a really big letter writer, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, she wrote a lot of letters, but she always had tons of... I mean, most of her letters were either to her mother or to um, different guys that she happened to be dating, so... Um, <laughs> Um, but she's very uh she was a great letter writer and really, um, you know, had this had this very breezy sort of tone that made you feel like you were just kinda of talking on the phone and um and she was very candid in her letters, so I, I I read as many letters as I could from the oh, I don't know what year am I thinking about now. Uh nineteen if it was anywhere in 1952, 1953, mm-hmm. 1954, maybe even nineteen fifty one, I was I was reading it and that was those were just amazing, um, and I also and oh, I forgot about this. In the archives, there are also letters that were sent to her from, from um, mainly from 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 different boyfriends, and some of those were just so funny, mm-hmm. so funny, and I just I just loved it. Um, there was in particular just the uh, guy that she he was sort of like a pen pal, but there were a few failed attempts at a romance, you know. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> The letters from him were particularly great because um, I could just picture this type of guy. I, I looked at a picture of him, and he was—you know—he had this leather bomber jacket for some aviator sunglasses, and he was from Chicago. And I think he, he sort of like you know um, posing as this kind of like Jack Kerouac type guy, and um, he's you know writing. And he was—he's clearly like a very very smart guy, and mm-hmm. I could, you could you could really see why they were friends and why they were so corresponding. Um, but towards the, the end of the letters began to take on his letters to her took on this very bitter sort of tone after there was an incident where you know they went out on a date and it didn't go so well. Um, and it was this, his um, because it was really just amazing, you know, because he's mm-hmm. talking about oh, he's you know, he's engaged now and I talked about this in my book, this girl too that he's going you to know, marry and he's telling Sylvia and it's very obvious he's trying to make her jealous and <laughs> you know, and it, and it's like kind of horrifying the way he talks about his current girlfriend. Like he's saying how you know her spelling is really good, but she's not creative. It's just like you know, she's she's not too pretty, but she's pretty enough. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just really, really terrible. Um mm-hmm. so it's just so funny and so I love, I love doing it. I love going through all of those documents. I and you know when I read? Um, her Sylvia's journals from when she was, you know, a teenager and, and younger. Mm-hmm. Those aren't published, and I, I loved looking at those because um, you really saw her personality. Right. So, so all of that was was just so fantastic for me.
1: <laughs> Sounds great. Um, so yeah. she came to New York to do an internship at Mademoiselle. Um, who did she work yeah. for, and what was the daily routine of that like?
0: Oh, um, well, she worked for all of the, all of the, um, guest editors, as they, they called the interns, were sort of assigned a mademoiselle editor. They were just kind of like, um, shadow, and that woman would sort of be her boss. So Sylvia's boss was the managing editor, and her name was Sarah Lee Abel. And, um, I think that, you know, from from what I understand, and from from every single woman that I that I talked to who was a part of that month, they all basically said the same thing, which was that Sylvia worked so much harder than everyone else, mm-hmm. not because she wanted to, but because her her job was different. Um, and I, I go into to, to this detail in my book. They the editors, it seems like the editors were kind of divided between um, what they would call the literary ones and the visual ones. The visual ones were, um, would be more, they, they would have a that had more to do with, um, you know, fashion and beauty and things like that, whereas Sylvia's work was really um, kind of putting the magazine together, mm-hmm. and she did have some uh, the, the high points of her work would have been you know, communicating with different writers because Shirley Abel was a very literary woman and you know, she'd been to um, she, was, she was the type of uh, Dylan Thomas, you know, mm-hmm. which was why there was just like, a, you know, the, the Dylan Thomas theater was that month, and um, so Sylvia would be on the phone and communicating with different people and I, and you know, you could tell that she really liked that from her letters home mm-hmm. but there was a lot of you know, copy editing and things like that, and just being stuck to the desk. And the other girls would, as part of their work, they would go to fashion shows and things like that. And you know, Sylvia didn't always get to do that stuff. So I think that the work was kind of hard on her. And there was also quite a bit of technical, technical things that she had to do. And um, you know, she wasn't expecting that. And as someone who is also, you know, like, I mean, I would, I would, I would be so upset if I. <laughs> I had to do something like that and I was thinking that I was going to be part of this really creative glamorous sort of thing right. so um, I think the work was hard on her and she wasn't always suited to it mm-hmm.
1: and it does sound like she was since she was kind of separated out from the other girls um, on she her was. own Yeah, did she become yeah. close with any of them?
0: she did, yeah she, um, she became closest to uh, uh, a woman named Carol LaVarne who is, and um, who sort of provided Sylvia with a basis for the Doreen character, except that, you know, I spoke with Carol and, um, she, is, it's, she wasn't, uh, that much like Doreen at all, at least, mm-hmm. you know, on the surface. But anyway, so, um, they became very, very good friends and they had a lot of fun adventures together. And she was also quite close with Neva, who's a big presence in my book. I, mm-hmm. you know, interviewed her and, um, she had kept all this stuff and all these letters. And, and Sylvia was also friends with uh, Janet Wagner, who kind of provided the inspiration behind the Beljar character, Betsy, who they call the um, Pollyanna cowgirl. Um, she was from Tennessee and, you know, very, very, very naive, very, very friendly. Um, immediately got her, like, long hair, long braids cut off and was just very pretty. Um, bob, hair tag. and she ended up staying in New York to be a model because she was approached by a um, model style from Ford models. So um, those would have been the, the women that Sylvia was the closest to, but it sounds like she was pretty friendly with almost everyone. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So I think in the cultural imagination Plath kind of exists as this is more the poet of the early sixties. That's how we think of her, and we don't really see her as being really glamorous. Or it seems kind of like a disconnect that she would love fashion, but she did. Um, and that's a, a subject that plays a substantial role in your book. So, what was her relationship with fashion and with makeup?
0: Well, she just um, she loved it. She loved all of it. You know, she was someone who is, and I think that this isn't that this wouldn't come as a surprise if um, it didn't come as a surprise. As someone who's read, you know, her poetry and, right. and her journals, she's what I would call very, like, physical poet. She's very tied to the physical world, you know. Um, she's not talking, you know, there are ideas, but it's, it's always rooted in in an object, in a thing that you can touch, and you know, very textural. So, so um, you know, she's someone who, who is really tied to the physical, and he's a very visual person. You know, one of the things about Sylvia is she was also a visual artist, right. and... Um, a pretty good one too. So, so it, so it's not it's not really a disconnect when you think about it. Um, so, you know, she uh, from a very young age just loved clothes, like a like a lot of us. I think that maybe she appreciated them even more because she couldn't just go out and buy whatever she wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, her she uh, although the year before in a in month coming leading up to the Mademoiselle internship, she spent so much money on clothes. Um, And it wasn't all about the Mademoiselle thing. I think that it was kind of a a tough year for her, her third year at Smith. So she sort of... Shopping became something that she did to relax and to kind of perk herself up. But she... um, And she loved makeup, too. She loved red lipstick. She wore red lipstick for a whole duration of her life. And um, I think it was something that she felt. It, you know, the, I, the whole idea of femininity was really important to her, mm-hmm. and it was something she thought about a lot and what it meant. And in the in the fifties, and I think even today, there is this idea that you couldn't. I think a very very sexist idea that you, that a woman. That she was plenty intellectual, whether a writer or, or, or anything else, then um, she sort of had to um, either give up or um, or at least appear incredibly disinterested in um, clothes and makeup and all of that visual presentation. Right. And I think that that made Sylvia. I know that that made Sylvia angry and resentful because um, you can read it in the journals. You know, she's thinking about it, and she's and she's looking desperately for role models of women who um, are writers, but who don't fit what they would call back then, like the blue stocking mm-hmm. stereotype. If that makes any sense, yeah. Um, and it is. and you know, the only the other one that I can think of is, and this is someone who I think is um, far more glamorous than Sylvia, and, uh, and they were friends would be Anne Sexton, right. Um, and I think that that's and that's probably one of the reasons why Ann Sexton stands out. You know, those images of her, um, she's was, she was actually good for modeling, I think. Yeah, but, I think yeah. Right. That's, I think I think that um, you know it was a the big theme in my book, and it's one of the reasons why I, I chose to write about this subject and this this month and her life because the idea of the feminine and um, beauty and fashion those and and the and what that meant within the context of an intellectual writing woman, those were constant themes in Sylvia's life. Mm-hmm. Constant. Um, so I, I wanted to look at all that stuff and I thought it was interesting.
1: Yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, you've also got, you, as we've mentioned, you did many interviews with the other interns. What were their memories of Plath?
0: They were really varied, mm-hmm. really varied, um, Some of them remember her as they all remember her as uh, very, very pretty, very smiley, always smiling, with um, really, really bright, straight white teeth. Kind of um, kind of like the classic, like an um, American <laughs> smile with the white teeth. Um, and they all remember her red lipstick and they all remember her very, very shiny hair and she kind of has at least at that time, she kind of had shampoo model hair or um, at the time the shampoo was either Halo or Brett and they had the girls, a lot of times, most of the shampoo models were blonde and they had, um, you know, the little cage boy haircut and so Sylvia had, had that look and, you know, she had, she definitely had solidified that look at that point so we all remember um, her own physical detail and um, in terms of her personality, that's where I got really different perspectives, mm-hmm. and um, some remember being a little bit, a little bit up and down. Um, not, not moody, but a lot of them remember her just being really tired at, mm-hmm. uh, at the office and sort of exhausted towards the end. Which really makes sense when you think about how much work she was doing and the fact that Sylvia was someone who. She, she wasn't the type of person who would say, okay, well, I've had a really long day at work. I'm actually going to not stay out till 5 in the morning. She's going to stay out till 5 in the morning, too, because she doesn't want to miss out. You know, mm-hmm. That's one of the things that I found very endearing about her. Um, so she was pretty worn out by the end, and the and other editors noticed that. Um, I think that uh, they all noticed that she had... Even, even if she was tired, she had that energy and she wanted to go out a lot and was always asking people, well, you know, let's go to this place or that place. Um, and they remember her as being pretty social. But some of the memories are a little unusual. Um, and that for, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of one. Oh, yeah. There was... um. Some, some people made some observ- noticed some of the observations that she made and they could tell that she was um, constantly sort of um, a little bit judgmental, mm-hmm. I think, and maybe a little bit snobby about going to, being from the East Coast and going to Smith and things like that. I think that she sort of saw herself a little bit set above some of the other women. Um, and then Neva remembers in very vivid detail Sylvia's re- Sylvia's behavior on the the morning that the Rosenbergs were to be executed. Um, And Sylvia was very, very upset about that and sort of, you know, shaking and and very upset at breakfast and then wandered into the subway by herself and she sort of broke out into this um, rash. And it was a very, very intense kind of unforgettable moment. Mm
1: -hmm. What? what We've well, mentioned her social life. What was her social life like during this month in New York?
0: It was really busy. Mm-hmm. Um, she was, a lot of, a lot of the stuff was taken up with scheduled Mademoiselle events. Like, for example, um, the dance at the St. Regis Ball. They, that was sort of the highlight, the high point of the, the social calendar for them. And um, so there was that. And then uh, there were a few things that they kind of, on their own. Um, the night that me and Carol stayed up all night at the Chelsea Hotel waiting for Dylan Thomas to come out of his room and they never saw him. So that was fun, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, then they, they, they just did the stuff I think that that, you know, twenty year olds would do today. They met a met random guys on the street and went to, you know, a bar in the village with them and stayed mm-hmm. dancing. Also, Sophia had some she, had, she knew some people in New York, so she had already set up a few dates on her own, so she did go out on a few dates. Um, most of, she really liked the village, and she was hanging out there and um, different bistros and stuff like that, drinking wine. They went to jazz clubs, things like that. It was, it was pretty full. Yeah. It was a pretty full, full calendar. So you have an
1: anecdote in the book about how Mademoiselle ran the intern's handwriting through analysis. What did the analysis of Platt's handwriting reveal?
0: let me take a look because I want to make sure I get this right. I thought this was really interesting. Yeah, it really was.
1: Cause it was from when she submitted, right? It was the original.
0: application. Yeah. 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 And it was really crazy because they didn't really, they, when, when they, when you looked at the, the instructions that the Mademoiselle staff was giving to those girls who wanted to apply, um, it was kind of sneaky how they managed to get this. They had sample. It was, I mean, they didn't just come out and ask for it. it was, mm-hmm. And, and I thought, well, you know, they, they, I'm, I mean, if it were me, I would have just given it to them. But, so I thought that was kind of neat. Um, oh, gosh, let's see. If, if you've ever seen um, a copy of Sylvia Plath's handwriting, I really like it. It's very mm-hmm. round, and it's it's very feminine, but there's something very simple about it. Um, you know, I'm having so much time finding it. But anyway, I, I remember a lot mm-hmm. of it. It, it said that um, she was. Oh gosh, I want to find it. The, the actual thing. But she was they, the, the person picked up on very perfectionist overtones, and um, it said that she was. It, it, it looked like they, that she was sort of identified more from the handwriting expert as a visual artist than a writer, which is interesting considering the fact that the editors kind of ignored that, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and the handwriting expert also apparently wrote to Betsy Talbot Blackwell, the Moundless editor, saying that someone, one of, one of her girls was going to, was headed towards the nervous breakdown, and that, in fact, was Sylvia, um, which was really kind of, I mean, that's that just sort of giving me chills in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah that he could tell just from this. And the, and the sample was very, very small. It was really small. In the magazine, um, they had a... And they, they would do this for every college issue. They would have, you know, a little picture of, of the guest editor and a teeny tiny little bio, you can make a line or two, and then a the, the copy of the, the signature. And then they would, um, they would give a little fragment of the handwriting analysis but only the good part, so you know, not the, not the bad part. Mm-hmm. So in Sylvia's good part, it says, you are know, very artistic and, uh, you know, very driven and, you know, a real sense of the visual, but it, it doesn't say the other stuff. Mm-hmm.
1: So this is this is a really broad question but um, what do you th- what was the significance of this period this month in New York what was the significance of it in her life overall do you think to her what did it mean to her
0: well I think for, for one I think that um, I think that when you're 20 years old like I am, um, for better work and I think that in a way it's kind of sad that it doesn't quite work like this when you get older but but a month or like a period or even a week or or a, a set period of time can just be so I remember times like this in my life when I was like, about 20 years ago where it, it's just like you see it in Technicolor and, mm-hmm. and you just feel like a different person do you know what I mean? Like yeah, You feel yeah, like I you're do. a different person or like it's like, you, um, or like you're in your own movie or like it's or like it's a separate life apart from your regular life, almost, and that you've already lived one full lifetime in some like one week or five week period, and I and I had the sense that this was kind of life out for her, and the more I the more I researched it, the more I realized that it really was, and um, so you know I think I think it's really hard to look back and to say. This is, well, she, this, because of this experience, this is why this happened, or this is why that happened. So it wasn't really about that for me. It was more about an interesting thing to me was I think that this month had a, what I really know that it did was it helped her, it was really instrumental in her forming her own idea of herself and how she saw herself, which I think is probably, um, the biggest thing. And I think that, um, I think that for one, she realized after this month that she didn't really want to work in editing or publishing or anything like that, that she really was, you know, an artist and just like a, someone who needed to have, like, free reign of her own creative mind. And um, she seemed to leave the month being very confident that, you know, she's she's she a writer, not, you know, a magazine editor. So in, in terms of concrete stuff, there was that. And I also think that it gave her, you know, she left. She left New York feeling very exhausted, very broken. But when you when you look at at, at the aftermath, I think that it gave her a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. And I think that it helped her sort of be you know, and it, it's only 1953, and I think that it sort of helped her see herself as more of a modern woman and a lot more bold, and not just kind of like a you know, as she would put it, like a, like a schoolgirl in Bobby Fox, like, waiting for a guy to pick her up for a date, she became a lot, a lot more sort of on the surface glamorous, you know, with very, very blonde hair and, um, you know, sort of bold, more bold kind of clothes and, you know, after, after this month, she had a very, very, uh, progressive attitude towards dating in men. Mm-hmm. Extremely progressive for the time. She no longer became remotely concerned about you know, reputation or this to that or being considered good and all this stuff. And for and that time, for 1953, for a girl of her background, that was pretty impressive, I think. Yeah. Um, she sort of took control of her own life. And so in a way, it, exists, but it did have a big impact. Mm-hmm. And she would have gotten exposure to women like that in a place like New York City.
1: Mm-hmm. I feel like we'd be remiss not to mention the breakdown did come after this, but this was not necessarily, there's a connection, but it's not necessarily that she spent this month and immediately had a breakdown because of the month, correct? Is that how you see oh, it? Oh,
0: right. Yeah. Right. I, I, I really don't think it's that simple. You know, certainly right. that sort of thing can happen if um, someone has a really traumatic experience right. or, or something like that, but but that wasn't the case here. I, I don't think that thing, has, you know, like a month. Can cause on its own can cause a breakdown if the worst things that happen or a little bit of disappointment and you're working too hard, right. you know. Um, it was it was obviously other things, and I think that a lot of it had to do with just feeling very very torn and trapped as and, and resentful that she had so such less freedom than than a, a man would. Right. And um she was angry. She she was very, very angry, especially around this time that she was nineteen or twenty and twenty one. She was angry that she didn't have that she had to choose between this or that and and men didn't have to. And I think that um I think that had a lot to do with it. Yeah. All
1: right. Well thank you so much for us, for talking to us today. Um, any idea who you're gonna be writing about next?
0: Yeah, I do, but I'm sort of afraid to say that <laughs> I can say that um, it's very very similar time period, and it's someone that everybody knows. Ooh. Well and it's a, and it's a woman because I don't think I ever write about a man. <laughs> <laughs> I've had I that thought too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's a woman. Okay. Um, yeah, but it's very it's very new, and I'm still just kind of, and it's very beginning stages.
1: Understandable. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. I've been talking today with Elizabeth Winder about Payne Party's work, Sylvia Plath in New York, the summer of 1953. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.